When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Releasing barriers to presence. In this podcast, Eckhart talks with a live audience about clearing away the obstacles to presence. Eckhart says the entire universe is awakening and is in the early stages of something vast. We are a part of that. To be spiritually awake means releasing barriers created by the mind. Eckhart says, while the ability to think is a great evolutionary achievement, people have become so enmeshed in thought. They've lost touch with their deeper essence and their spiritual legacy. It's good to be back. I could live here. <laughs> Who knows what the universe is planning? So if you haven't been with me before, it might not look very promising to have this man sitting on a chair, <laughs> knowing that he's going to talk for who knows for how long. He doesn't even walk up and down the stage and gesticulates. Well, he does gesticulate, but he doesn't get up. And there's no PowerPoint presentation. So, there needs to be something here that makes up for the deficiencies, external deficiencies, and that which makes up for the eternal deficiencies is inside you. Externally, there's only a man sitting on a chair talking for an hour and a half or two hours, who knows, three, four. <laughs> and yet, the words may have some interest, but the words are not the main thing here, although I'm probably going to talk all the time. So the words have two functions. Either they point to something that is beyond words, something that you can only recognize from deep within you. In other words, it's not to do with believing in anything I say, but realizing that the words are signposts, they point. That to which they point is within you. One could say it is a certain state of consciousness. And to the extent to which this state of consciousness, which we could call the awakened consciousness or presence, can use other words, again, the words are just the signposts, to the extent to which that awakened or awakening consciousness is already active in you, to that extent you realize what it is that the words point to. And you don't realize that conceptually, 
It's not so much to do with understanding conceptually because what I'm going to talk about does not require you to mentally work out what it is that I'm saying. What's he talking about? Presence? Presence? In other words, you don't need to think very hard while you're here and if you can refrain from thinking altogether, that would be best. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a second. So one way the words are being used is to point to that and then the signpost then works. The Buddhist expression, you might have heard the teaching of Buddha, which could, but could be any spiritual teaching, is a finger pointing to the moon. That's the teaching. So, and the Buddhists say, don't mistake the finger for the moon, because that's what the dog does. When, the, when you point at something to your, to your dog, says, there, look, the ball is it's over there. The dog looks at your finger, it doesn't look at the ball. So don't do that. So the, the words are the finger pointing to the moon. Go to the moon. Don't stay with the finger. <laughs> Another function, the second function the words have is they may occasionally, from time to time, point out certain obstacles that you are likely to find within yourself to the realization of that moon. <laughs> That's, well, let's go to that analogy now. The realization of that consciousness in you. There are obstacles in human beings, in the human mind, that are recurring, that many of you will recognize when I point them out, but it can be very helpful to point out what the obstacles are in you to the realization of what we might call the state of presence. I sometimes call that the new consciousness, the awakened consciousness, and that is the larger context in which our gathering here happens. It is, the context is the awakening of human consciousness, which one could describe as the next stage in human evolution. It would be erroneous to believe that humans are a already a finished product. They are a work in progress. In other words, they have not been fully formed yet. We tend to believe that humans were created, well, that's the biblical, some time ago, we got all the tend evolutionary process has created humans, but many people believe this is now, we have arrived now, evolution has come to an end. It hasn't. It's really only the beginning, the early stages of something vast, a vast universal movement of consciousness the entire universe is awakening and you are an expression, a temporary expression in this particular form of the awakening universe. So if you enjoy being here and it seems to you that time is not passing, that means there's something in you that recognizes already the truth of what I'm talking of. And that will probably, hopefully, apply to most of you. But there may be a few people here who didn't really want to come here, but 
they couldn't say no to a spouse or sibling or friend. They said, okay, I'll come along. I'll check that guy out, see what he has to say. And then if this awakening, the awakening of the new consciousness has not yet started in you, then it is possible that you may find sitting here extremely boring. <laughs> and you may want to feel free to get up and leave. I'm not going to say, what are you doing? And nobody will judge you, because most people here are already beyond that kind of thing. <laughs> and if you need to go to the bathroom or toilet, I don't know whether it's called toilet or bathroom here, don't hesitate because you might think, oh, if I go to the toilet, people will think that I, I'm not getting it. <laughs> or you could just sit there and say, I have no idea what he's talking about, and getting bored out of your mind, which that might be a good thing. Or you could tell yourself the ancient dictum, this too will pass. <laughs> and if you really go into that, this too will pass, that may take you into presence. <laughs> so miracles are possible. So the starting point is always, of course, the present moment. If your attention is fully in the present moment, then you are awake spiritually. But what does it mean to have your attention fully in the present moment? The normal way of being in the present moment is not to be fully there. You are there physically, but your mind is somewhere else. Your mind is either in the past or in the future. For many people, the present moment exists only as a peripheral phenomenon in their lives. They know there's something there that's the present moment, but the underlying belief is there's something much more important that I need to be concerned about, and that's not the present moment. But what I need to be concerned about is how to get from here to there, because there is more important than here, always. That's a normal way of being in the world. It's unconscious. People don't know. Nobody actually says there is more important than here, but they live as if, always, the next moment, the there in time, it could also be the there spatially, they live, most humans still, especially those who are not awakening yet, as always as if they needed to get away from this moment. With brief interludes when you're okay in the present moment, brief interludes like sensory pleasure, can you enjoy a meal? It's good to be present, but you, you can't do it for too long, then you get ill. Another thing, of course, that takes you into the present moment, having sex also, of course, takes you into the present moment, so, but that doesn't last that long either. 
And then, of course, another thing that takes you into the present moment is certain substances that you can take. You can smoke something. And that takes you into the present moment. But there's something not, I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. This is, you can drink also. You can have a stiff drink, as they say. And what happens then, the voice in your head, especially the smoke, the voice in your head is not as frantic anymore. It doesn't, because as you probably know, people have a voice in their head that talks all the time. I don't mean the, the people who are mentally ill who actually hear a booming voice that talks to them, but, but there's always something going on that comments on your life and has things to say, and that's the, the normal, compulsive, involuntary thought processes that go through your head all the time. And that it tells you stuff. It has a commentary. It's the running commentary on your life. And that's thinking. It's fine. Thinking is an incredibly wonderful evolutionary step forward. It was an amazing development, the ability to think. But it, it over time, over millennia, a considerable downside developed of thinking. A great evolutionary attainment but for everything, there's a price to pay. So a great evolutionary attainment, in, in, it enabled humans to do the most incredible things, to create cultures and philosophy and science and, and so on. But thinking gradually took over their lives more and more. Some anthropologists have put forward the theory that when thinking first started happening in humans. Of course, it coincided with words where people started to use language. So the words existed, first they existed in the head as thought, and they existed spoken as sounds. So as they started to use language, then thinking grew, developed. And some anthropologists have put forward the theory that they have some evidence for it. I don't remember what the evidence is. That the, when humans first started to think, they believed that gods were talking to them in their head because it was so, such a new thing that suddenly there was a voice that there was words forming in their minds. And they had then suddenly they, they, they knew who they were. They had suddenly they had names, things had names. They had names. Who are you? Me, John. Oh. <laughs> you, oh. And you begin to believe that there's some ultimate reality in the sound that you create for yourself. And that was the beginning of gradually, very gradually, becoming identified with the voice in the head. And that took thousands and thousands of years and now we've reached a stage where almost every human is identified with the narrative, the story in their head. It talks to them, sometimes in the first person, I, sometimes in the second person, which means you talk to yourself. And, Why can't you get anything right? Why did you do that? Why? You can have a monologue, you can have a dialogue, you can even be a third person. 
now you might remember that from you, well, the time when you, you were completely identified with the, you're not anymore because that's why you're here. If you were 100% identified with the voice in your head, the compulsive thinking, you would not have come here. There would be no reason to come here because what I'm talking about would be totally and utterly incomprehensible to you. So that the fact that you are here means there is something has arisen in you that is deeper than thought. That the new consciousness, what a presence, a new dimension of consciousness is there. For many humans, it's not there yet. And for many humans, the voice in the head is a daily torture. Daily torture because it creates misery in people's lives. It creates an enormous amount of unhappiness because it has things to say about you that you're not good enough. You should have done that. You should do that. It complains about yourself. It complains about others. It complains about situations you're in. It tends to dwell on negative things rather than positive things because negative things, it can really get in there and become active. With good things, it's harder. I can think for hours about yesterday when somebody was offended me and after it's happened, I start thinking, I should have said that. Why didn't I say that? Next time I meet this person, this is what I'm to say. How dare he not respect me? I just, people like that shouldn't be allowed to exist. Why doesn't, why doesn't? <laughs> this is just, you can go on for hours thinking about and you feel more and more angry. And, and this is only one relatively insignificant incident, something that happened yesterday, but the mind even there can get in there and amplify that instead of saying, okay, it's finished, gone, just be present. This, it disappears immediately. The uh, animals don't do that because they cannot keep alive things mentally in their head. So some, I described in The Power of Now, I was watching I was writing The Power of Now, and I would go every day for a walk in the park, and I saw the duck, two ducks getting into a fight, and they get quite angry, it seems, when they're fighting. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was surprised, the, that was a teaching of the ducks, they were teaching me the next, uh, something to add to the next chapter in the book. They got into a fight, and immediately when the fight only lasted 30 seconds or less, and suddenly it, it was over, and they swam off in opposite directions. And both ducks, and they always do that, they kind of get up on the surface of the water. They almost stand up, and they flap their wings violently. <laughs> and the, when they've done that, nothing ever happened. They swim on. <laughs> There's no mind that keeps alive what happened just now and they have dissipated the energy of it. A great teaching, but humans do the opposite. If you are unconscious, unconscious, by the way, I'm going to use that word quite often probably tonight, unconscious does not mean, the conventional meaning of unconscious, as you know, is. <laughs> so when I talk about unconscious humans, 
I'm not talking about, the, but they're all <laughs> unconscious in a spiritual sense means completely identified with the compulsive, incessant thought processes in your heads. Identified with every thought that comes into your head. Now, what does it mean when I say identify? Identify means it's to do with identity. It's to do with who you are. It's to do with your sense of self. So when you identify with the thought, the thought has you in its grip to such an extent that every thought has a sense of self in it. So you derive your sense of self, of who you are, your sense of self, you derive it from the voice in the head. And that is for still millions of humans on the planet, that is still their daily reality. Their, their sense of identity, who they are, is derived from the narrative in their minds. And that's an amazing dysfunction because it creates enormous amount of suffering that is actually unnecessary. The identity that is rooted in thought is always one that is deficient. It's, you feel you're never enough and this moment is never enough. There's always a great sense of something, something is lacking in my life. And what it is that's lacking in your life, everybody, every human who is identified with their mind has that sense of there's something vital that's lacking in my life. That's, there's something not here that should be here. And what it is varies from person to person. But it is an underlying structure in the, what I call the egoic, the egoic mind. So ego, in the sense that we use it here, is the sense of self that is completely identified with thought. And as I mentioned, the tendency of thought of the egoic self, which is the, the mind-made sense of self, which is an image of who you are, consisting of certain stories you tell yourself in your mind, and you call it my life, my life. That's very problematic. On the level of the story of my life, there's nobody in this room whose life, on the level of the, the so-called my life narrative, that's not problematic. It's heavily problematic. My life is not easy. Let me tell you about it, <laughs> if you're willing to listen. And then you can tell me about yours. I'm sure it's not as bad as mine, but I'll listen. <laughs> So everybody carries around a conceptual self that they call my life. And the moments when you're happy, really happy with your life, usually don't last that long. It is more normal to be, to a greater or lesser degree, unhappy with your life. If you're happy today or right now, just wait a little. <laughs> because things will change because humans get continuously challenged by situations, and then you become unhappy again. So the voice in the head, the compulsive, tends to dwell on 
things that are not good rather than things that are good. Why does it do that? There's so much more to think about when it complains than about something good. Yesterday's sunset that was so, let's say you saw a sunset yesterday, it was so magnificent. And in the moment of seeing it, it freed you for a moment from the voice in the head because you just went, wow. And you felt more intensely alive suddenly. Why? You didn't feel intensely alive because of the sunset, or it seems that way. You felt intensely alive because you were so overwhelmed by the beauty of it that for a moment your thinking subsided and something else arose, and that something else was presence or awareness. And you went, and that you, in that moment you felt more intensely alive than you would normally do. And then, of course, you, on the, the next day you can say, that was such a wonderful sunset. I felt so alive. But apart from that, the mind cannot do very much with it. Compare that to complaining about the person who offended you yesterday, how much the mind can do with that, and how it can get in there and amplify the story and fantasize what's going on, what you could have said and will say. The next time people in general are so unpleasant and you don't really want to be here with people anymore and, why, and all kinds of things. So the, it's hard on the good things the so-called, the mind can't do, do that much with it. It tends to dwell on the, the negative and the egoic self, the mind may itself get stronger when it can complain about something and when, when it can make something into an adversary or an enemy. It loves that because it feels stronger in its sense of self. People do that. There's often such a thing as a collective ego, nations, groups, entities, collective entities. They love their enemies. They love to make enemies because then it defines your sense of self more than you feel more yourself. It's all illusion. It's all mind stuff. So the mind-made sense of self is a terrible curse. And that is something that we need to transcend so that we can actually use thinking in a powerful, focused, constructive way and actually create and manifest things through thinking. Thinking is an amazing tool. Where thinking becomes destructive is when it assumes your identity. When you do not think, but thinking happens to you. People say, I think. It's not true because the thoughts that go through their head, they have no control whatsoever over the thoughts that go through their head. So they, to say, I think, is actually not true. It would be truer to say, I am being thought by my thoughts. <laughs> Thinking has taken possession of me to such an extent that I think I am it. So, in other words, I am actually possessed by my own mind. And how this possession manifests varies from person to person. It has something to do with your, your past history. It has something to do with the 
cultural environment in which you grew up that conditioned your mind to think in certain ways. So that, can, that varies enormously. If you grew up in Saudi Arabia, you would think very different thoughts, unless you lived in the West for a long time, but if you were in just in one, just to take one example, can you make many others, you live in one particular culture, enclosed, and you get conditioned by the thoughts of that culture. And if you join Australia, you have different kinds of thoughts that go through your head, you get conditioned the mind gets conditioned in that way. But in either case, if you are not awakening yet, you are completely identified with that. Then you look at reality through this veil or this screen of mental concepts, including the sense of identity, which is mental, and then you look at the world through that. And don't even know it. You don't see anything clearly because you look at it through the veil of judgments and conceptualization. And whatever you perceive, you comment on it. You immediately call it something and, and in most cases you have some kind of opinion or mental position towards it, including human beings, every person you meet and immediately have, hmm, the mind will tell you about something about them or situations, you find yourself in places, situations, people, wherever you are, most people's attention is much more in the, the narrative in their head than what's actually happening around them. So that is, it is a case of really being possessed by the conditioned mind. It's a dreadful fate, dreadful. I can sometimes, when I see people they are so burdened by their personality, which is the conditioned self. There's this, they, it, sometimes I feel as if the, the people, many people are carrying this heavy burden of this personality, which they have been carrying for years. And then sometimes the older they get, the more rigid it becomes. And immediately they know everything. Whatever you say, they have an opinion about it. And they don't know it's an opinion, they think it's the truth. So, and you, you can't argue with them, it's impossible, completely pointless. So they are so identified, but they believe in every thought that comes into their head. That's how it is, let me tell you. <laughs> you just talk to people about politics, that, that tends to stimulate that kind of dysfunction. And nowadays you're not confined to speaking to one or two people, the same dysfunction, you can, you can do it on the internet, you can do it on Facebook. You put forward what your, your positions, your mental positions, but you don't know it's a mental position, you think it's the truth. And then you come into conflict with others who are also identified with their mental position. So you have a conceptual sense of self, a narrative, the me, that's me, me and my life, me and my opinions, me and my likes and dislikes, me, me, that comes into conflict with other conceptual identities and actually loves the conflict because the more you're in conflict with others, the more strongly you can feel it, it's your fictitious identity. You feel it even more strongly. That's why some religions in some countries, they need their enemies you can see, even see it now, the same mind structure that created the insanity of the first half of the 20th century with 
hundreds of millions killed, the same pattern of insanity emerging again. I can, when I listen to the news, I can say, what are they doing? They need their enemies. They, they must, the collective needs another enemy to fight. We must, and they all participate, politicians, the media, yeah, Lord, they are the evil ones. I'm not saying there are no, there are certain very unconscious people around on the political leaders, not to mention any names, but <laughs> the, the big question is whether people who are already very unconscious are drawn into politics or whether <laughs> even a relatively conscious person when he or she gets into politics becomes unconscious. I don't know, I, I haven't solved that yet. <clears throat> So the important thing is to realize then there are thoughts that continuously go through your head and are you able to be aware, for example, of certain repetitive thoughts that you tend to have in your mind? Because they may be there every day. They may resurface in many situations in relation to other people, to yourself. Do you have recurring thoughts about yourself, about your life? Have you already come to a conclusion about how your life is? Have you reached the conclusion that you have, your life is a, has been failed? You have failed in, some, in, in the endeavor of your life? Your life has been a, a disaster? You, you've missed out on everything? <laughs> is the, the narrative in your head? What's it telling you about yourself? What is the story of my life? What is it saying? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Now the question is, what reality does that actually have? Of course, it's connected with your past, your historical past. You remember the past, you remember the things that went okay, you remember the things that didn't go according to expectation. And out of that, a narrative forms, and you call that my life. Now, a great degree of unhappiness in humans that they live with on a daily basis does not arise from the situations they find themselves in. A greater amount of unhappiness arises that is created by an unhappy narrative in their minds, which they call me and my life. And they don't know that. If they could look through that and see that a large amount of unhappiness in my life, and unhappiness could be anger, it could be sadness, it could be resentment. Unhappiness can take many forms. Even a, a slight irritation is a small form of unhappiness. <laughs> and so many people are, are unhappy with themselves or they put all the blame on others, which is still part of your narrative, and then you're unhappy with all those people who have messed up your life. <laughs> I'm not saying that things are done to people that are bad, but I'm talking here about deriving an identity from your historical past or the way in which your mind interprets your historical past. It may not be the actual events, because if you ask your sibling about a similar thing 20 years ago, 
he or she might have a completely different story of the same event. Happens quite often. So me and my life and people are trapped in the conceptual my life and the problematic my life and they carry around this burden of my life. I hope it's going to work out in the future because I still have years left. <laughs> I could still achieve happiness. That's the hope. But then the hope has a downside and that is what if it gets worse? <laughs> and so you go from hope to fear. And of course, I can tell you it might get better for a while, and then it will get worse. <laughs> because you're going to get, die and the body, either you just die suddenly or the body gets older and older and then you hard to walk anymore, and you, you get retired, and you don't have an identity anymore that's to do with your social function, and there you sit, and it really is getting worse now. Who am I now? I don't have a job anymore, nobody tells me who I am. Of course, eventually, there's always the form begins to dissolve. I'm not saying that you should not try to improve the conditions of your life. But more importantly, is to realize that you do not have a life. Because that's, people say, my life. Now, if you look at the structure of that sentence, my life, there's a duality there. Because if you say my life, that implies that you have it. It's mine. So it implies two, duality. If you say, my life, there's you and the life that you have. <laughs> it belongs to me, it's mine. <laughs> so the, this thought, this language creates a duality in your mind. Call it my life. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's me and I have a life. And then the fear comes in, if I have a life, I might lose it. And of course, then you visit the cemetery and you say, yes, they, they all once had their life and they lost it. <laughs> they lost their life. And that's going to happen to me too. Not realizing you are trapped in certain mental formations that create an illusory identity and actually create delusion. You don't have a life because there is not a duality. Without life, there's no you. So you can't have it. You are one with life. There isn't you and life. You are life. You don't have it. Now, if you are it, you can't lose it because you are it. Of course, we'll have to see more deeply what we mean when I say you are life. But let's for a moment stay with that. You are you are life, you don't have a life. So you can say it for yourself in your mind, I don't, I don't have a life, I am life. This is the end of duality. Do you realize there's, there's a oneness of you and life? And when I say life, we can use another word. The essence of being alive, what is the essence? Let's go there 
slowly. What is the essence of who you are? What is the essence of the life that you are? Okay, now normal humans, which means unawakened humans, say, well, the essence of my life is my whatever they identify with. It's my possessions, my what I have, what I know, what I, my body, all those things that I identify with. That's the, the essence of who I am is whatever I derive my identity from. It could be the physical body, or it could be my car, or my house, or my work, my function in society, or it could be friends that I have, things that I have attained. These things are all in the mind also. Let's say your, your, your sense of identity, which is you compare yourself to others all the time, which is you do when you're in your mind, you compare yourself to others. Let's say your body looks better than other people's body for a while. <laughs> this too will pass. <laughs> but for a while you can get in there and then you become this is my body that also is a mental formation so it's not so much you identify with the body you identify the thought of my body that's what you identify you don't identify with your Ferrari if you have one it's the thought of my car which is, makes you superior to others who only have a little car, or your body makes you superior to others who have a puny and weak body. So you can display, for a few years, you display your body on the beach <laughs> and feel good about yourself. And after a while, a day comes when you look in the mirror and say, oh, <laughs> What happened? <laughs> There's something wrong with the mirror. In the past, the mirrors that people made were so much better than the mirrors now. So for a while, you, you identify with this or that. That is quite normal. And so when you ask, what is the essence of who you are? Most people would tell you, well, I am, this is who I am, this is what my identity is derived from this, 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 and this, and this bundle of things is who I am. It's not always positive, because I was just talking about having a body that looks better than other people's body. You could have a body that looks worse than other people's body. And so that serves too. You could either, either you look for something else that gives you an identity, like actually you're more intelligent than all these stupid beach bums. <laughs> so you can say, oh, look at these people, so, but you have so much more knowledge and intelligence and you can look down on them. Or you can be more spiritual. So if, if you, I can't afford a Ferrari, I'm on my bicycle, and you say, look at this materialistic person in the Ferrari. <laughs> Or if that doesn't work, you can see how 
unfairly treated by life you have been, it's how so much more miserable you are than most, most people. <laughs> and you've really been a victim of, of circumstances, you've been a victim of your birth and of your, your parents that did a dreadful job with you. <laughs> Maybe if their parents had been more conscious, things could have worked out, <laughs> but they weren't. But that, that also gives you a strong conceptual identity. So if you can't have a positive one, the negative ones can be just as strong, if not stronger. You can have a huge victim identity. It's a favorite thing. Sometimes in the collective, certain egoic things become fashionable for a while. Nowadays, is the victim identity for certain groups of people are very fashionable. So people can feel, oh, yes, we are all being victimized by those people. And of course, there's some truth in it, in some cases. But to derive an identity is a delusion. To derive a sense of identity from that is a huge delusion. That is not who you are. That's all my life. That's all. So if you are not all those things, so when I ask, who are you? If I ask that question, don't go, let's do this for a moment. Don't go into the past. Can you feel or sense who you are without reference to the past in you? You don't even need to remember your name right now. What for? You don't really remember your email address or your phone number or what happened to you 10 years ago. Don't need to remember that. Can you still get a sense without reference to your personal history? Can you get a sense of beingness or presence? There's no past in that at all. But what is that? You can't really describe it. All you know is that you are, I am. You can sense the underlying beingness or presence of you, but to really sense it, what needs to happen is that for a moment, the stream of thinking needs to subside. And it may be happening for many of you at this very moment, the stream of thinking that is normal for most people that never stops except when they fall asleep, the stream of thinking for a moment subsides and when I asked you whether you can be sense yourself without reference to the, your personal history, what I was really talking about, what I was really asking was can you get a sense of your presence without thought? Ah, and there's enormous revelation here. This question, who am I, does not have a real truthful answer on a conceptual level. It's not in thoughts or words. The true answer to who am I has no thought in it. It is a sense of presence or beingness. And it, you can only sense that if, for, if, if, if it's only a moment. So the stream of thinking subsides and what happens is you are completely present without your mind saying anything. You, you can perceive everything, you can, still, you can see, you can hear, you're fully there and your mind is still. Still does not mean 
that you've gone to sleep. It's the opposite. You're actually more alert in that stillness than you would be if you were identified with this continuous stream of thinking. That's the stillness, the inherent stillness that actually every human has that. You don't need to work hard to attain stillness or think that if I follow the right course of action, it might take me 10 years and then I'll be able to have a still mind. No, it's already there. And if you're not totally miserable and unhappy every moment of your life, that means without perhaps you knowing it, anybody who is not extremely miserable all the time has a little bit of access without even knowing it to that stillness within. They don't know it. All they know is from time to time they feel a little bit good. They feel, ah. They don't know, for three seconds they stopped thinking, ah. They might have some other explanation of why in that moment they felt good. Ah. Maybe they were looking at a dog and in that moment, because the dog wasn't thinking anything about them, because the dog d doesn't think, the dog is conscious but not conceptual thinking, the dog does not have an opinion about you. <laughs> and so when you were petting the dog, for perhaps you suddenly felt good about petting the dog. Why? Because for a moment the dog freed you of the judgmental conceptual mind that otherwise would be very active if you were patting a human, it would say something. <laughs> of course, you can't do that because people would think you're insane. You can't go up to a human, may I pet you? That, that would be nice if they did that to each other, but, but the humans have judgments about you. So whenever you go to a human, you know that he was, has certain thoughts about you, so the other human cannot free you from your thoughts. But the dog or the cat can, for a short moment, free you from your thoughts. And in that moment, it feels good. That's why people love their pets so deeply. There's a reason, a deeper reason why they love, because the pet frees them a little bit from their minds. And there are moments when you interact with, the, with your animal that there are you can experience brief moments of thoughtless awareness. Two seconds, three seconds, but it's enough to keep you going. It's enough to, so that your life doesn't become totally miserable. And then you might have other moments. You might have moments when you engage in some physical activity. You swim or you climb a mountain, and then there are moments that your total presence is required by the activity so that there's not enough left for thinking. And again, you feel intensely alive. Oh, that was so good. Why was it so good? Well, it just, I love it. It's just so good. I don't know why it's good. Well, it's good because it freed you for a moment from the incessant stream of thinking. And there was some degree of awareness or presence arising. But you didn't even know that. So it's always that that dimension of consciousness is in every human. Now, I must admit, there are still millions of humans where it's so deeply 
hidden in them that they have no access to it. But there are others who are beginning to awaken to this dimension within themselves. So now you don't have to wait for certain things to happen to briefly free you from your mind. You don't have to wait for the next encounter with a lovely dog in the street, or you don't have to wait for some beautiful moment in nature when you, you take in the totality of a forest or the vastness of the sky and you, you go, or at night you look up into this clear sky, the vastness of space, the countless stars, which are suns, most of them, the, and the vast distances and the stillness of it all. And you go, it still can still your mind too. That was my first meditation when I was a teenager. I didn't even know what meditation, I didn't, had, at that time, nobody talked about meditation in the West. I looked up at the sky at night, we were living, when I was a teenager, we were living in Spain, so the sky was often, in the summer especially, totally clear, and I would sit on the roof of the house and go, wow. What I don't, I'd realized many years later that while I was doing that, there was no thought in my mind. The, the space, the outer space created in me that inner space or inner spaciousness, because, so that's another word for it, another pointer, the inner spaciousness. If you don't find that, and, and I'm saying find or discover, I'm not saying achieve or attain. It's not an achievement or attainment because you already, it's already there as the essence of who you are. But you have to discover it that, it, that it is already there. If you don't find it, you are condemned for the rest of your life to live a very frustrated existence because life will be just one damn thing after another. One damn thing, and it never leaves me alone, but what really doesn't leave you alone is your mind which reacts to every little thing that happens and amplifies every little thing that happens. It's not so much what people call karma, it's not so much what, what happens to them, it's how they respond or react to what happens. And when you're unconscious, you amplify every little challenge in your life, becomes a big thing in your mind. Oh my God, oh, oh. And it was only a little thing, but it gets amplified and personal conflicts arise all the time. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening.